0: well, he's probably better known to history by uh, by his nicknames. A couple of them that he had there. Uh, El Campeador was one, but perhaps most famously, El Cid. El Cid was a knight. You may have heard of him. He lived in the back half of the 11th century in Iberia, modern day Spain and Portugal. Uh, he was born in Castile, although, as you'll uh, shortly find out, that's not always where his loyalties lay. Uh, El Cid is quite a re- He's got, got quite a remarkable story because during this period of history, um, a period where Christians and Muslims were in near constant conflict over the Iberian Peninsula, El Cid actually ended up fighting on both sides. He fought Muslims and Christians alike throughout his career, a career that landed him with a, a reputation and a legacy that has lasted even through this very day as the archetypical medieval knight. He's brave and strong and and chivalrous, but... There are more than a few twists in this story, as you'll discover. There's banishment, there's exile, there's political upheaval, genius military strategy, capturing cities, all sorts of stuff. So much more, and his legacy still lives on today. As I say, he's a legendary figure in Spanish folklore, and and this is due to his incredible exploits throughout his entire life. In particular, his strategic brilliance at the Battle of El Cuarte, which we'll uh, we'll talk about in in more detail a little, little bit later on, but. He was a man who seemed to really know how to roll with the punches, how to make lemonade with the lemons that life gave him. An absolutely fascinating figure from Spanish history here. So let's get to it. Let's learn about this bloke, El Cid, uh, as we'll be calling him throughout this episode. Although he didn't get get this title until later on in life. But for the sake of historical clarity here, that's what we're going to call him today, El Cid. All right, off we go. We're going all the way back, going all the way back here to around 1043, to the small village of Vivar, which is in northern Spain. Uh, it's near a larger town of Burgos. It's directly north of Madrid. And it was there uh, that uh, Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar was born, as I say, 1043, or around that date anyway, uh, into the minor nobility of the Kingdom of Leon, which at this point also included Castile and Galicia. Oh, mate, don't even worry about it. Medieval Iberia. I mean, did you, did you miss how complicated Spanish politics got at this point in history? we had a bit of uh, medieval Iberian history a couple of weeks ago of course with Afonso of Portugal and uh, while these two blokes they weren't alive at the same time uh, the backdrop of their respective stories is is very similar There's impossibly complex politics with feuding christian kingdoms all operating under impenetrably complicated systems of suzerainty and vassalage families all going at it each all going at each other you know every which way and that's not even touching upon the relentless conflict between christians and Muslims, because there are a bunch of Muslim states, don't forget half of the peninsula is under the control of various Islamic rulers. So it's all very, very complicated indeed. But we can, uh, we can zoom in here on El Cid and, and talk about his upbringing, his earlier life there. Uh, his dad was a knight who worked for Ferdinand I, uh, King Ferdinand, sometimes called uh, Ferdinand the Great. He was the King of Leon, and Leon, remember, at this point also includes the other Spanish kingdoms, Castile and whatever. Um, although this is about to change, as we'll discover. Elcid had a pretty typical upbringing for the son of a knight. He also entered into military service as a young fellow, but sadly, his dad died when Cid was just 15. So, uh, you know, dying when, when Elsid was at, at quite a young age... But nonetheless, after the death of his father, he was taken into the service of a young bloke named Prince Sancho, who was the eldest son of King Ferdinand. And uh, even as a young man, El Cid gained a reputation as a, as a skilled and fearless knight here while working for Sancho. And it was all relatively smooth sailing for El Cid up until 1065, when he was in his early 20s. But 1065, of course, a very important year in Iberian history, let me tell you this, because in 1065, Ferdinand the Great died. Now, he had ruled over, he had united and ruled over a huge amount of territory, relatively speaking, essentially all of northwestern Iberia. But when he died, he left behind him five children, three sons and two daughters. And he carved up his kingdom, this, this you know, I'm not, I don't want to say completely united, but roughly unified uh, all these kingdoms of Spain here. He carved them up amongst his, uh, his children, hoping to secure peace between them once he was gone, that they wouldn't be scrapping and squabbling over, you know, this part and that bit of the kingdom that they thought they should have. The three sons, they got a kingdom each, Galicia, Leon and Castile, while the daughters got a city each, which, you know, is not very fair, but there you go. Ferdinand's hope that was his kids would, you know, share. They'd play nicely with one another after his death, seeing as they all got something for themselves, carving his kingdom up into three smaller kingdoms. But, of course, that's not what happened. Not at all. I mean, you know, as you might have expected, fighting broke out almost immediately between these siblings. And it was Sancho, uh, the bloke who's in charge of El Cid, El Cid's liege, who was behind a lot of this conflict. Sancho was the, the, now the king of Castile, but he had his aim set much higher. He invaded Navarre and Aragon, two other Spanish kingdoms ruled by his cousins rather than his brothers. He invaded Navarre and Aragon. He added them to the territory of Castile. So he's already, you know, strengthening and and, and consolidating his reign. Um, And at the same time that he was expanding into Navarre and Aragon, his younger brother, Alfonso, who was the king of Leon, he made a push into uh, Muslim-controlled territory, expanding his own power and influence just like his brother was doing. And this worried Sancho, worried Sancho so much that he then went to war with Alfonso to put him in his place, although he ultimately didn't take Leon, uh, not that time anyway. So these brothers are really, I mean, they're fighting everyone. They're fighting the Muslims. They're fighting their cousins. They're fighting each other. But then... I really enjoy this part. In 1071, absolute classic brotherly conflict arose here, right? Sancho and Alfonso, they'd been fighting each other before. But in 1071, they teamed up together and invaded Galicia, which was ruled over by their youngest brother, Garcia. Two older siblings ganging up on a younger one. You love to see it. This is classic stuff. Sancho and Alfonso absolutely pants their poor younger brother Garcia, nicked his kingdom, split it between the two of them, and sent him into exile. So again, I don't know, for all the, for all the elder siblings out there, you'll recognize this. This is a thousand years ago, but you're looking at this and going, oh, this is masterful stuff. This is, this is exactly what you should be doing as, a, as, as an elder sibling here. So Sancho, right, this leaves him in a very, very good position after he's just bullied his little brother off the map here. He now controls Castile, Navarre, Aragon, and half of Galicia. And you'll never guess what he does next. I mean, he's the older brother, right? He's the eldest. Of course you know what he does next. In 1072, he also decides to invade Leon and fight Alfonso again. Now, you know, from an objective standpoint, you look at this, you go, bloody calm down, Sancho. What's gotten into you, mate? Go around fighting your brothers like this. Chill out. Bloody hell. But then I think about how much I, as the eldest, love to pick on my younger siblings. And I go, no, look, you know what, Sancho? You're absolutely right. Just the natural order of things. I mean, it's his job, really. It's his job as the eldest to bully his younger siblings. So good on you, Sancho, mate. You're getting out there doing the right thing. Anyway, long story short, Sancho defeats Alfonso, exiles him, seizes Leon. And just six years after Ferdinand divided up his kingdom amongst his children, Sancho has once again unified it. Nice work there. And he crowns himself the king of all Spain. And he's having a bloody great time. And during all of these dynastic struggles for Sancho's supremacy here, who was at his side? But El Cid, of course. El Cid was there, one of his most uh, important and loyal lieutenants, uh, fighting battles, performing important tasks for the king, and eventually rising so high as to become appointed Sancho's royal marshal. He was a very important uh, part of, of, of Sancho's conquests, and he was rewarded with this rich title and the responsibilities that came with it. So in 1072, after this conquest, Sancho's conquest is complete, things are looking Very bloody good, not just for Sancho, but also for our boy El City's come good. He's the Royal Marshal of the King of a Unified Christian Spain, having a great time, loving life. He's picked the winning side here, or has he? Because in a turn of events, you'll never suspect Sancho's rule was cut short, very short indeed, when he was assassinated that very same year in 1072. Now, here's how the story goes. It may not be entirely true, but this is the traditional tale, right? Sancho, he's he's laying siege to Zamora, which is a city that's still holding out against his rule, led by none other than his sister, Uraka. Zamora was one of the cities that have been given to uh, to one of the children of, of Ferdinand. And Uraka's going, listen, mate, you might be my brother. I don't care. I'm not going to give in to you. And if you want this city, you're going to have to come and pry it, pry it out of my hands. And Sancho goes, all right, no worries. Besiege the city, not a worry at all. During a siege, During the siege, however, a Zamoran noble, right, came out from the city, came to Sancho and said, Listen, mate, I want to defect. I'm not a fan of your sister, much bigger fan of you. I want to join your side. And I've got I've got all the secrets, mate. I can tell you about all the weaknesses in the Zamoran defenses, all the rest of it. So let's go and have a chat about that. Sancho goes, mate, this buddy, brilliant. Absolutely excellent. Love to have you here. Great to have you along. Come through here. Tell me, mate, we'll have this siege one quick smart, I reckon, once you tell me all the stuff that I need to know about how to take the city. And so they go through, you know, a bit of a private audience there. And this noble then grabs Sancho's sword, runs the king through with it, killing him on the spot before turning to flee. It was El Cid himself who gave chase to the assassin, but the noble made it back to Zamora through a gate that even today is called the Portillo del Trador, the gateway of the traitor. So Sancho's dead. His reign was not a particularly long one. And what's more, he died without ever having any kids. So... His heir, believe it or not, was none other than his exiled brother Alfonso, who is now the king of all the realms that his brother unified. He's just got, I mean, essentially was just finished kicking Alfonso's ass down the stairs. And now Alfonso is picking up the crown from his dead brother's body and popping it on his own head. He promptly comes out of exile, reclaims his throne, along with the rest of the thrones as well that his brother had, uh, had gathered together. He locks up his younger brother Garcia to make sure that he's not going to get up to any any uh, you know any tricks and be a problem for him. And he gets on with the business of being king of a unified Spain. And this Alfonso, as you may have already uh, already worked out here, is none other than Alfonso VI, the grandfather of Afonso I of Portugal. But that, of course, is another story. Episode 154, Get Across It. Now, there was a lot of suspicion on old mate Alfonso when it comes to you know, surrounding his brother's death here because it seemed a little too convenient for some. Alfonso gained enormously from Sancho's death, and also the, the circumstance of his death was suspicious not just when he died and because of how Alfonso benefited from it, but where he died. Why? Why was it suspicious that he died while besieging Zamora? Well, I have to say, none of this has ever been proven conclusively, but it is thought by some that Uraka, right, their sister, had more reason than you think to knock off her brother, Sancho. It's hard to pin the assassination on Alfonso. He's off in exile, difficult to organise such a thing. But Uraka was right there, in the very city that Sancho was besieging. But why would she want to kill her brother? Why would she want to kill Sancho Sancho, and deliver Alfonso instead, this entire kingdom? Well, there are rumours, and they're just rumours, mind you. But There are rumours that Uraka and Alfonso were more than just brother and sister. Again, it's never been conclusively proven, but it is thought that these two may have been rooting. They thought, it's, It may be the case that Uraka and her brother Alfonso were lovers. Now, a lot of this is speculation, both then and now, right? But interestingly enough, it, it raised enough suspicion that El Cid himself stepped in and attempted to clear up the matter. He had Alfonso swear on holy relics that he hadn't been involved in the death of his brother, that he wasn't shagging his sister, right, and that he had nothing to do with, you know, the the chicanery that had gone, that, that had obviously been undertaken in order to get Alfonso the, the crowns that he now enjoyed. Alfonso duly did this, swore on these relics, and then after this issue was, for want of a better term, put to bed... He went on to secure and expand his kingdom in the coming years. And whether he did this while also, you know, having it away with his sister on the side, we will never know. But there remained a rift between El Cid and his new liege, Alfonso, because in many ways of this controversy, not to mention the years of service that El Cid had given Sancho, and even after Alfonso organised a marriage between his cousin Jimena and El Cid, this bad blood remained between the two men. They they just didn't seem to like or trust each other at all, despite El Cid's prowess as a military leader. Um, El Cid lost some of his titles and positions, although he continued to dutifully campaign for his new king as Alfonso expanded his realm. I mean, despite the the, the tactical brilliance that he had and his skills on the battlefield, Alfonso just didn't trust him enough to give him the the you know the prime position that his uh, dead brother Sancho had. But it was one of the campaigns that El Cid was sent off on that ended up getting him in a lot of trouble with Alfonso. In 1079, El Cid won a great victory against Emir Abdullah of Granada. He routed the opposition, took a great many prisoners at the the Battle of Cabra. However, he pushed too far into enemy, enemy territory here. He pushed further than he was authorized to by the king. And this provoked the wrath of Alfonso, who, of course, already, already didn't like El Cid. Alfonso took this, this push, this unauthorized push into, uh, into Islamic territory here, as a defiance of his orders, even as part of a victory here. And along with all of the other bad blood between Alfonso and El Cid, this was what drove the final wedge between these two blokes. Alfonso exiled El Cid. He banished him from his kingdom, and El Cid, accepted the decision. Not that he really had a choice, and he left the service of his liege. But it wasn't the end of the world for El Cid. I mean, that's fair to say. Far from it. He's a famous, very talented military leader, and he very quickly found work elsewhere. But as essentially all of Christian Iberia was under the control of Alfonso, and and therefore was forbidden for El Cid, who was in exile, for whom was he to work? Who was left? Well, you may have already figured it out. That's right. He went into Al-Andalus, the area of Iberia that was ruled over the Muslims. And specifically, he went to the Taifa of Zaragoza in the east. Now, Zaragoza was at this point independent, although it would later become part of the Almoravid Empire. You'll remember them from episode 154. Zaragoza was ruled by a bloke named Yusuf al-Mutamin ibn Hud, who was happy enough to employ a legendary warrior such as El Cid, although of course, let's remind ourselves that he wasn't actually called el Cid at this point. And when he started being called, that is actually still a little bit up in the air. The reason I bring it up here is that some theorize that it was al Mutaman himself who gave the title to el Cid uh, as an honorific from the, uh, from the Arabic al Sayid, which means the Lord or the Master. But it may have come from a period much later in his life, in the 1090s, which we'll, uh, we'll come to in due course. As for al Campeador, one of, his, one of his, his other famous nicknames, this was a title given to him by Christians, not by Muslims. And it comes from a Latin term for master of the battlefield. And he was certainly called El Campiador during his lifetime. That's for certain. It's one of the names that he's known by even today. But it's less certain that he was ri- widely referred to as El Cid while he lived, even if that's what he's, uh, he's more famously known as today. Anyway, while in the service of al uh El Cid once again excelled himself as a leader and as a general. He, uh, he fought in defense of Zaragoza against anyone, against everyone, Christians and Muslims alike, and he proved his worth time and time again. He led, he led a large army made up of people from all over the place, Arabs, Berbers, Malians, and a, and a whole host of European soldiers as well. Uh, and he fought for Zaragoza for six years, first uh, uh, under al-Muttamin and then under his successor, al-Muttamin's son, al-Mustayn II. And during this time, Alfonso VI made a huge push against Islamic forces in Iberia, which culminated, we talked about this in episode 154, it culminated in the the famous capture of Toledo in 1085, uh, a huge moment for the Christians turning the tide against the Muslims in the Reconquista. But in response to this push, while uh, El Cid is, is in the service of Zaragoza, Islamic leaders in Al-Andalus, they appealed to the Almoravid dynasty, uh, Muslim leaders in northern Africa, to come to their aid against the Christians after the fall of Toledo. Now, the the Almoravids, they agreed. They headed across the Strait of Gibraltar to, uh, to bolster the Muslim states there and ultimately, of course, rule the Rus there as well, as we know. And this culminated in the Battle of Sagrajas, which was a huge victory for the Almoravids that sent Alfonso back with his tail between his legs. In fact, the Almoravids might have completely annihilated Alfonso's, almost almost his entire army. Historians still disagree on this point, but it's certain that it was a crushing defeat for Alfonso, and, and and he definitely lost at least half of his forces during this battle. Fortunately for Alfonso Herber, the Almoravids were unable to press their advantage after this win. Uh, some political uprisings back in northern Africa demanded immediate attention, and so they weren't able to press the advantage, as I say. But nonetheless, with this victory, the Almoravids established themselves as a force to be reckoned with on the Iberian Peninsula, and the Islamic states there, well, many of them at least, quickly allied themselves with the Almoravids as they saw them as a way to deliver them from the uh, increased hostility from the Christian kingdoms there. This gave Alfonso great cause for concern. He was worried that not only, you know, his quest to conquer Iberia was doomed, but also that he might lose his entire kingdom to an eventual push from the Almoravids. And especially after having his army, you know, potentially utterly destroyed at this this, this battle. He had to re, uh, he had to recoup, he had to rally, and he had to bolster his forces and make sure that he was ready for any further attacks from the Almoravids. So what did he do? I mean, he, as I say, he did everything he could to bolster and strengthen his forces, but he was forced to eat a little bit of humble pie, as he recalled none other than the great El Cid himself into his service. Interesting. All of a sudden, with the Almoravids knocking on the door, old mate Alfonso is suddenly, he's, he's cuddling back up with El Cid, wanting him back on side. And El Cid was, luckily for his former liege, open to the idea of returning to his service. But here's the interesting thing. We know with a degree of certainty what happened next, but we don't know exactly why. There are a couple of different stories here, depending on whom you believe. Let's zoom out for a bit and, and, and set the scene. Throughout this story, and indeed, you know, throughout the one about Alfonso of Portugal a couple of weeks ago, we've looked at this sort of this this Christian-Islamic conflict as being pretty binary, a real sort of, you know, with us or against us type deal. But, you know, while broadly speaking, it's not totally inaccurate to characterize it as being this black and white, it was a... It was a little more nuanced than that in many situations. For instance, there were Christians who were perfectly happy to live under Islamic rulers, adopting their culture, their dress, their lifestyle without adopting their religion. And unusually, given how heated religious wars could be, particularly in the medieval period, medieval Iberia saw a lot more religious tolerance between Christianity and Islam on a day-to-day basis than you might think. People of various religions were able to live in areas where they were the minority and go about their daily lives largely... Uh, you know, free to practice their own religions as long as they accept the rule of those who are in charge. This would change in time, obviously, but at the time of El Cid, there were these Christians and these Christian and Islamic states in Iberia, they weren't entirely homogenous. And this is important when we get to the next part of the story here and we talk about what El Cid did next. Parts of Iberia that were under Islamic control, some of them weren't too keen, on the Almoravids. Some Muslim and, and, and Christian citizens of Islamic taifas, they, they weren't big fans of a foreign power sweeping in from Northern Africa and taking control, even if they were helping the, helping to win the war against the Christians. There were, there were many Muslims who were saying, "Well, we actually don't want the Almoravids coming in and taking over. For instance, in the city of Valencia, there was a sizable proportion of the population, both Christian and Muslim, that didn't like the Almoravids at all. And there was you know, a lot of Muslims who were anti- Almoravid, even though this was, you know, a, a, a quite a powerful force of Muslims that, that really did threaten the, the, the Christian domination uh, to the north. And the reason I bring up Valencia is because it is the city of Valencia that then became El Cid's target. Although, again, we can't say with 100% certainty how this came about. There are two versions, two principal versions of the story here. One version of the story goes that Alfonso called El Cid back up to service assigned him the task of capturing Valencia from its current Islamic leaders and establishing it as a Christian city that would resist the Almoravids. Now, this would please the Christians there, naturally, but it also might not go over too badly with the Muslims there who didn't like the Almoravids and didn't want to be swept up in this, uh, you know, in, again, in the clutches of a foreign power. As part of this assignment, Alfonso promised El Cid that he'd be able to rule over any of the lands that he captured, which would make him a pretty important lord if he succeeded in taking the city of Valencia. Obviously, he'd be in charge of it. But there's another version of the story that tells it very differently. It ends up in the same place, but we take a very different route to get there. This other version says that apparently El Cid may not have been that willing to return to the service of Alfonso VI after all. We do know that he headed back to Alfonso's court, that's for sure. But then he may have just walked away from his former lord altogether. According to this version, he knew that Alfonso and the Almoravids would tear each other to bits while they were fighting and become increasingly weakened and eventually offer him, as an opportunistic warlord, a time to strike while both of these forces were were, were kind of licking their wounds from whatever battle they'd have. And the place that he would strike, of course, would be Valencia, where he could carve out a little kingdom of his own and establish himself as leader. Now, I don't know which of these versions is true. I don't know whether he was charged with the capture uh, capture of Valencia by Alfonso, or he decided to do it under his own steam. I couldn't define. I couldn't find definitive evidence for either story. But what I do know is that El Cid was ultimately successful in capturing Valencia for whatever reason he attempted it. It makes little enough reason, really, why he did it. If the first story is to, to, to be believed, he was given dominion over Valencia by Alfonso. And if the second version is true, he just claimed dominion over it anyway. So this means that as we head into the uh, into the 1090s and with El Cid singularly focusing his attention on capturing Valencia by hook or by crook, he fought other local lords, he captured smaller towns surrounding Valencia, and in 1092 took advantage of a local uprising within the city of Valencia itself besieged it in the midst of the turmoil, and after a long and protracted affair, this, I mean, sieges usually were, he resisted all attempts to break the siege, and in 1094, in May, Valencia finally fell to El Cid, he took the city, booted out its Islamic rulers, and he took charge of it completely. Now, in name, you know, technically speaking... He should have been under the rule of Alfonso, of course. He was a Christian ruler in Iberia. He owed his allegiance to the Christian king, especially if the first version is true and, you know, he'd been charged with the capture of Valencia in the first place. But the reality, the political reality of the situation with the war raging on in the background was that El Cid was effectively completely independent. He was able to run the city as he saw fit and he had carved out, again, his own little kingdom here that he could rule as he pleased. Well, Briefly, that is, because only a few months after El Cid captured Valencia, the Almoravids, they began a mighty push back into Iberia, and a commander named Abu Abdallah ibn Muhammad was charged with recapturing Valencia from El Cid. Muhammad After crossing uh, into Gibraltar, he marched to Valencia with as many as 25,000 troops here as part of this renewed push from the Almoravids to take over uh, Iberia here. And El Cid was sitting behind the walls of Valencia with forces that numbered around 4,000. So heavily, heavily outnumbered by uh, by these Muslim forces here. We've talked in the past about the military supremacy of the European cavalry charge here. This is one of the greatest uh, weapons in the arsenal of, of European warfare at this point, the, the heavily, heavily armoured knights ravaging and breaking opposing armies. But El Cid, with you know his position inside the walls of, of Valencia overwhelmingly outnumbered by, the, by Muhammad and his forces, wasn't in a great position to take advantage of something like a cavalry charge in order to defend his city. So things aren't looking too good here. A hugely numerical, numerically superior force bearing down on his city, and he's unable to leverage one of the great advantages that European heavy, heavy cavalry had against uh, against the Islamic forces that they came into conflict with at times like this. But El Cid was, as I've mentioned a masterful strategist, if nothing else, and as the Almoravid army approached, he began to seek out ways to leverage an advantage for himself. Elsid was unusually collaborative as a general. He invited input and suggestion from his lieutenants, and even sometimes the General Soldier Corps on occasion as well. Not only did he read all the classical works on military strategy, but he also had them read out to his soldiers during their downtime, partly for entertainment but also for instruction. He liked to draw up battle plans, deployments, formations, movements, and the like. His military mind really was unlike any other. So, as the task of defending his city from this overwhelming force approached, El Cid used his tactical genius to figure out a way to defeat the Almoravids once and for all. El Cid was known for incorporating elements of unconventional and psychological warfare into his battle plans. And after thinking about this upcoming battle for a while, he pulled together a plan that was most devious and most cunning. El Cid knew that this huge Almoravid army would need a place to set up camp, with enough room and enough greenery for their horses and camels and elephants and whatever else to graze. Not, not to mention room enough for you know all the men to set up camp and, uh, and and have a place to you know sleep at night. And there was a spot not too far from El, uh, from Valencia called El Cuarte, and it looked like the perfect spot for an army such as this. It was around six kilometers away from Valencia. Valencia, great big plains near a river and El Cid surprisingly was absolutely determined for the Muslims to set up shop there and stage their siege from this spot El Cuarte one that seemed so perfect for them right to ensure that the Almoravids decided upon this spot as a camp for their army El Cid sent off a contingent of anti-Almoravid Muslims from Valencia, people who were loyal to El Cid, he sent them off, essentially asking them to pretend to be thrilled to see the Almoravids as a liberating army and suggest El Cuarto to them, guide this army to this perfect spot by the river here that they would be able to, you know, graze their animals and set up camp. Why, you might be asking, did El Cid want the Almoravid army to use this seemingly perfect spot? Why would he deliver his enemies to a a place that would be so, you know, brilliant for them to stage this siege? Well, it was because El Cid knew that these plains were prone to very heavy flooding in autumn every year. And if the army camped there, they would very probably end up half submerged in water ...if El Cid could hold out until the rains came. What's more, another advantage that El Cid managed to leverage here... ...his Muslim allies within Valencia told him that the Almoravids would arrive during Ramadan... ...which is an Islamic religious festival where Muslims refrain from eating during the daytime... ...from sunrise to sunset. El Cid was told that to make up for their fasting during the day the Almoravids would very probably gorge themselves as soon as the sun went down and then sleep in each morning after such a heavy meal the night before. Armed with this information, El Cid went about readying Valencia for siege. He prepared the city as best he could for the oncoming siege, and with his preparations thus made, he waited for the Almoravids to arrive. And arrive they did in early October, and immediately Muhammad approached the city and demanded its surrender. El Cid, as you can imagine, told Muhammad to stick it where the sun don't shine. And so Muhammad retired to El Cuarte, where he had, after all, made camp. These very helpful, you know, so-called defectors had come and said, oh, mate, come and set up camp here. And Muhammad's gone, bloody great. Good on you, blokes. Thanks for bringing us to this perfect spot. It looks amazing, right? Muhammad returned several times to the besieged city of Valencia, every time demanding El Cid surrender, but El Cid refused to give in. He waited and waited and waited. And after 10 or so days, the signs that he was waiting for began to appear. It looked as though the rains were finally about to arrive. And on one day, as night fell, as it began to get dark, the rain began, and El Cid put his plan into action. In the early hours of the morning, through the drizzle, El Cid and a contingent of his knights, they got up in the small hours, they snuck out of the city gates to face the Almoravid soldiers that were besieging the city. And they made quick work of them. Let me tell you, the contingent that had been sent forward from the main camp at El Quarte were taken by surprise. They were sleeping heavily after the big meals they'd eaten before going to bed, and they weren't prepared for this surprise attack. And as the rains got heavier, El Cid, once they'd defeated this uh, this smaller force of, of besieging soldiers outside the city, El Cid gathered his knights and began the journey out to El Quarte, where the bulk of the Almoravid forces were, of course, camped. And he had ordered... All of the weirs, the dams, and the levees to be broken once the rains began. Obviously, to the great confusion of the of the farmers and peasantry in the surrounding area. But they nonetheless obeyed obeyed the the order of their lord there. And as he headed out, as El Cid headed out to El Quate, this this system of canals that was used to irrigate the surrounding farmlands, all of their protections, all of the all of the stuff that redirected the water into them were torn down and broken, and so all this water was now flowing furiously down the river, which quickly broke its banks. And even as the alarm was raised in the Almoravid camp, it was too late. Flood waters were spreading across the plain, turning it into a swamp more or less instantly. And this only increased the chaos amongst Muhammad's ranks as they attempt to mount up and give battle and defend themselves in this surprise attack. Their waterlogged horses struggled to find their footing. Their panicked elephants trampled indiscriminately, killing people all over the place. Tents and supply wagons were washed away as the waters rose. And the Almoravids were in complete disarray, completely unable to prepare a meaningful defence to El Cid's attack. I mentioned before the power of the European cavalry charge, and this is exactly what Muhammad and his men, half drowned, ill prepared for battle, sleeping off heavy meals, this is exactly what they were subjected to. El Cid and his knights pounded into the flooded camp, mercilessly cutting down the Almoravid forces and scoring a resounding victory against an army that was overwhelmingly larger in size. It was a monumental and utterly improbable victory, and it sent the Almoravids packing well, Those that survived, that is. Mohammed himself was captured, although El Cid later released him after after the Almoravids refused to pay his ransom. El Cid had made enough money as it was from looting his defeated enemies. All their riches, their gold and jewels they'd brought with them, they were all pilfered by the winning army, adding a sizable amount to Valencia's treasury. The Battle of El Cuarte was then a huge victory for El Cid and for the Christian cause in Iberia in general. And it was celebrated at European courts far and wide. Now, it didn't hugely turn the tide of the war, the reconquista, the battle. These battles would rage on for centuries to come. However, it turned El Cid into a hero to the Spanish, a reputation that is held on to this very day. Even though Alfonso wasn't able to capitalise on the momentum that El Cid gained at El Cuarte, it secured El Cid's legacy as a legendary figure in Spanish folklore. Indeed, it may have been this performance in El Cuarte that got him the title El Cid, Bestowed on him by his foes as an honorific for his masterful conduct in defending his city. We're still not sure of the exact origin of the nickname, but certainly that is a contender for how he got it. And after this battle, El Cid remained in Valencia, ruling the city alongside his uh, his wife Jimena as a de facto independent leader. Valencia held out against the Almoravids until 1099, when a renewed siege tested the city's resolve once again, and I'm sorry to say, took El Cid's life. He didn't die in battle. And but probably instead as a result of famine or disease brought on by the siege. This time, he wasn't able to find a way to defeat the Almoravids, and so he died in the city that he had ruled for the last five years. There is a story, and it's probably apocryphal, that Ximena ordered his body to be dressed up in his armour and strapped to his horse so as to disguise the fact that, he'd been, uh, that he died from the troops and inspire them in battle in fighting off the the, the, sieging, the besieging army. Some versions of this story tell how the corpse charged the enemy alongside the other Christian knights as they attempted to lift the siege, but I mean, look, I don't know how that's even remotely believable. It probably didn't happen. I mean, mate, think about it. You're not As if you're not going to notice your boss's body bloody dead and has been strapped to his horse. You got all the other knights going, play El. El Cid's a bit quiet today, is he? What's, what's going on over there? He's not even holding the reins. Anyway, after his death, Jimena took over the rulership of Valencia, but... It eventually did fall uh, to the Almoravids, and it remained under Islamic rule for over a century, but not before Ximena managed to escape, along with her husband's remains. uh, She moved to Burgos, near where El Cid was born, and if you visit Burgos Cathedral, even today, you can find his tomb, where his remains lie alongside those of his wife. And today, El Cid has a near legendary status in Spanish folklore, as I've said, as a national hero. Very famous indeed. The picture of the ideal medieval knight. Fierce, strong, and utterly courageous. But that's it. That's all she wrote today sports fans. That is the story of El Cid El Campeador, Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar, the name that hardly anyone knows him as, which is which I find quite interesting. It's interesting that the 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 title that ended up sort of being his most famous uh, to history was the one given to him by the foes he potentially vanquished, if indeed he got the nickname in 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 the 1090s after the Battle of uh, of El Cuarte. But uh, a fascinating story anyway you slice it, one that I was very very happy to share. So i hope you enjoyed it as well. Anyway, we're going to close out the show, of course, with the normal boring housekeeping stuff here. Uh, halfarsehistory.net is the website anchor.fm slash history, if you want access to the direct feed there on the website you'll also find a contact form if you want to send in uh, topic suggestions or anything like that or any feedback it's great to hear from listeners i do love to uh, do love to get through those emails although obviously i can't reply to them all i do apologize for that and my eternal thanks to those of you supporting the show on patreon patreon.com slash history, if you'd like to join their exalted ranks where you can gain access to uncut episodes show notes all sorts of stuff like that, and uh, thank you to those who are supporting me week in and week out, it's uh, it's great to have you along. Anyway, that is that for another episode of Half-House History, thanks for being part of it, we'll see you back in next week for more of that, and leaving you not with a question from Reddit, how we normally end the show, but I don't know, a funny joke that I thought of, I guess, I was trying to think of a good way to say it, but it's just basically a dumb gag that I thought of, and here it is for your listening pleasure, after the Battle of El Cuarte, I guess you could say The rain in Spain really does stay mainly on the plain. Thank you very much.